the volume. Oral Sessions is brought to you by FanDuel. It's never been easier to play fantasy on FanDuel. Whether you love basketball, golf, soccer, or any other fantasy sport, there's a contest for every fan. FanDuel, more ways to win. Ladies and gentlemen, let's begin. You're listening to the best of oral sessions with Renee Paquette. These clips are handpicked by Renee from her to you. This frequency is... The best of Sami Zayn. Um, okay, so let's get into some Sami for Syria. How did this all come about for you to start taking some of these more like philanthropic endeavors? Thank you for asking about uh, the Sami for Syria stuff because I'm always eager to talk about it and get as many eyeballs on it as possible. But you're asking me where it all started from. Uh, obviously, I have a close connection with Syria. I'm Syrian, all this stuff. But really, it was born out of the realization that I felt like a big phony. Uh, and a big kind of hypocrite because I, I just, I didn't do anything. I felt like I was one of these people who was like, that's awful. And I felt like, oh, well, I can pat myself on the back because I think it's awful. Most people don't even care, but at least I care. But what does that do really? And there's a point where I had to come face to face with that realization. Like you're, you're, you don't get points for caring. You can get like little points on social media. People give you some likes for it, but as far as actually sure, doing something. Sure. Right. And, and I, I came face to face with the realization that I wasn't doing anything. And so I started looking into the possibility of, of what can I do? And so I started researching and my brother's an activist and he's done a lot of work with bringing refugees over actually to Canada, Syri- like Syrian refugee. Yeah, I have family from Syria who actually came over to Canada and he facilitated a lot of, a lot of that stuff. So I kind of asked him about some organizations. He pointed me in the direction of Sam's as one that was based in the States. And when I looked more into them, the thing that really appealed to Sam's is the Syrian American Medical Society. And so the thing that really appealed to me was that they were boots on the ground. They were working in Syria, as well as in you know refugee camps in neighboring countries. But that's what really I wanted to help the people that were stranded in there. And that's something that previously I'd felt completely powerless to do. You know, where do you even begin? You know, like you, you see what's going on in like Yemen as an example. And you're like, oh my God, that's horrible. I wish I could help those people. But you don't. You don't know where to start. You don't know where to begin. So you think there's this massive company like, I don't know, UNICEF or whatever. And you're like, I'll donate to that. So this was a bit more involved. Uh, and I got to get to, you know, bounce ideas with them to where I could be more involved. And I saw all the millions of different things that they do. And uh, I saw that they do mobile clinics. So I said, well, wait a minute. What if I, you know, raised money? Could we start a, a mobile clinic? And they kind of looked at the need for it and if they could facilitate it and all this stuff. And it was a possibility. So that's how it all started. How much money did you have to raise to do that? The first mobile clinic that we did in 2017, I think the immediate goal that we needed was 50,000 or 48,000 or something like that, just to get it started. That wouldn't even cover, you know, operational costs beyond maybe a first couple of months. Uh, But we were able to keep that running for about a year. And then I did some other stuff with them, like humanitarian relief stuff. And now to date, we've raised over $250,000, which is crazy. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I'm just Congratulations. So yeah. Well, I'm just very grateful for that because it's, I mean, I put some money in there for myself, but it's, it's really a collective effort. And again, this kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier about that relying on each other and the power of unity and all that kind of stuff of depending on one another. If you pool your resources together, 
the amazing things that are possible. You know what I mean? So all these people donated a little bit here, a little bit there. And over time, it's added up to over $250,000. Do you have like a tally on a number of like how many people you've been able to help? I'm sure that's hard to keep track yeah, of. Yeah, it's but- very hard to keep track of. But I know they sent me a, a report in September. And I forget the numbers off the top of my head, but they blew my mind. It was something like, uh, what was the number? It was like 4,500 something services in one month. Wow. And they gave me a breakdown of what the services were. And that actually really put it in perspective. Because when you're talking about something like this, it's so abstract. You talk about helping people in a foreign country. You don't really know what that entails, but you're just like, oh yeah, we're doing good. Raising money, medical services, hooray. But you don't really understand the real, there's an objectivity to that. It just seems so detached. But then when they started sending me reports of, okay, here's 4,500 medical services. And 600 of those services were for gastrointestinal and 1100 were for, uh, you know, infections and for urinary. And all of a sudden you can really start that kind of started to humanize the folks that are getting the help because you've had those ailments and you remember how miserable life was without treatment for that and and what a difference maker it is. And in some cases, some of that stuff could be life-saving when you're talking about diabetics or, uh, you know, people who need penicillin or whatever it is. I guess that kind of stuff puts it in perspective or when they send me updates with uh, pictures or videos of the people or the kids that are getting helped, that's when it really kind of hits me like a, like a bucket of water where it's like, Oh my God, this, these aren't just numbers. It's not just an abstract idea of helping people. These are the people getting this specific help. And that's one of the things that I love about the mobile clinic and about the Sammy for Syria thing. And this is not to knock any of the big organizations like uh UNICEF or Red Cross or whatever, but those organizations are so big that when you donate, first of all, you feel like it's a drop in the bucket and you don't really know what it's doing. Whereas this is, it's much smaller and I could show you the direct results that you had. And one direct result is there was no clinic. And now you're looking at a picture of a fully equipped mobile medical unit. And that's a direct result of this money. So that's one of the things that I love about uh, this particular thing that we're doing is that you get to actually see the results. It's not sort of just lost in some huge pool of money that you don't really know where it goes. You know exactly where it's going. It's so cool to think of you like starting that. Like I remember when you first started putting out the tweets about it being like, oh, this is great to, yeah, now have it being this like fully functioning, saving lives, helping people day in, day out. I mean, you want to talk about just being able to sit back and you, you've worked hard for the things that you do, mm. but now to be able to like give back to a certain yeah. degree. I mean, it's, it's really cool. Cause like you said, it's so easy to sit back and be like, oh man, that looks bad. Or I wish I could help with this, that you've done it. Yeah. But you know, I, I still, I get it. I get it. I understand the defeatist mindset a little bit when it comes to these things that seem so big that it doesn't mm-hmm. seem like there's something you can do. And you look at our current, uh, you know, social and political and economic situation, and it just seems like, how are we ever going to get out of so many of these issues? How do you even talk about fixing these issues? Where do you even begin? It's overwhelming. And not only that, but these systems are all inextricably linked. It's like, you can't just fix one thing. You can't just say like, for example, with the police reform and all the stuff that came out of the George Floyd protests, like fix policing. Okay. It's not an isolated thing. It's tied to all these other things. You know what I mean? These are very, very complex issues. It's so deep. Yeah. It's so deep and you don't know where to begin. So this was my eye-opening thing that even though I still feel like that sometimes, I do know that it's not true. 
I can snap myself out of it because I've experienced firsthand the ability to do something that felt overwhelming. You know what I mean? With, with the serious thing. I mean, even getting to it's WWE. It's just starting with something. It's, right. it's picking something and starting and making it come true. And you would think it's kind of a lesson I would have already learned with WWE because, again, as a 16 or 17-year-old scrawny little Arab kid from Montreal, it seems like climbing Mount Everest. Like, it just didn't seem like anything that ever had any real possibility. But here we are. Didn't you just celebrate, like, almost not like it was 19 years 19, yeah, since yeah. your first match like almost two decades of wrestling wild man what are some of like the big moments that stand out for you from like first time stepping into a ring to getting to you know be part of wrestlemanias and different pay-per-views and all the crazy things you're doing now yeah i can't even speak about uh how do i put this i can't even speak about particular moments because there's so many there's so many that i i And I'm just so lucky to have experienced all these things, but it's almost more like I can break them down into chapters, you know? So for example, when I go back to talking about first meeting all these French Canadians, these Quebecois and writing to them to shows from Quebec city, you know, at the time that seemed to just last forever. But when I look back now, after almost 20 years, that was a dot. That was like the first year, year and a half. And then by a year and a half, I, I broke out and started wrestling in the States And that was a whole new chapter, that feeling of being young and crossing the border illegally. Really? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Get them out of our country. We've all done it. Yeah. We've all done it. Look out, Rainbow Bridge. We're all coming across. Oh, I could go, ooh, I could go on a big one about this subject, but I'll I'll dance (laughs) away. Um, but all this to say, that feeling of uh, oh my God, I'm wrestling in the States, being young and 1819 and packing five, six guys from Montreal and going down to the States and going down to Philly or getting on my first plane, that thing of just being in the States for the first time and wrestling in the States for all these Big little deal. Yeah. Especially for promotions that I was studying tapes of like ring of honor or IWA mid South or pro wrestling gorilla. So I'm studying these tapes and all of a sudden I'm here. And that feeling of just this newness, it's very hard to articulate. But I, I've had so it many. It sounds of those. very like romanticized. Like you think about these things and you finally get there, and it's like it lives up to the hype. It sounds like it lived up to all the things you wanted it to be. Well, that depends. That's I think that's a matter of perspective. That's a matter of how you approach these things when you get there. And I have so many of those. And again, my God, how grateful I am for how many of those I have. Like the first time going to Europe and I'm in wrestling in England, or the first time I'm in Japan. There's been a handful of really surreal moments. And one that I'm sure you could probably relate to is the first time you see the Eiffel Tower in person, because it's this thing that you've seen your whole life on television and movies and whatever, cartoons and in these Archie comics that my phone is currently <laughs> sitting on right now to raise the camera. Like it's this thing you see growing up and you know about it, you know about it. And then one day you're there and it's right in front of you. And there's this surreal, almost goosebumps inducing moment. You're like, I can't believe it's here. I can't believe I'm here. It's just so surreal. It just, it's almost hard to believe it. And I had that so many times, um, you know, uh, first time in Paris for sure. Moscow was a big one. The first time I was in red square and those Tetris, you know, Tetris, the church there. And I'm like, I can't believe this is in front of me. This is, this is a different world. This is a different history. This is a different culture. This is a different everything. What am I doing here? I just can't believe I'm experiencing this. I've gone all over the world to me. And I had this attitude very early and I think I've held on to it even after going to these countries, in some cases, 
dozens of times. I still approach it like, I can't believe I'm here. We're here. People save for years to come here. People dream of coming to these places and we're here and we're only here for an afternoon or, you know, a few hours. I could work out anywhere all the time. And look, working out's part of the job. So I'm not saying, you know, if anything, there were times I'm like, ah, I'll work out when we get to Dayton, you know, when we get back to Dayton, Ohio, whatever, who cares? Like, there'd be times I definitely blow off my workouts, especially in Europe, because we're in Europe. You gotta, you gotta live. You, you have you to. Have I think that's your obligation. obligation. And that's the word I was going to use. I had a sense of obligation. I have to honor this. It's my duty to honor this for those that can't, <laughs> for those that can't, the people that can't be there. You should be filling up your eyes and your soul and your stomach. You should be tasting foods from different places and you should, yeah, don't like the idea of going to a chain restaurant somewhere in Europe, like that would bring don't me to get tears. Me started. You have no idea. That would bring me to tears. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. I was really fascinated with or inspired by, I guess, when you had the double shoulder surgery for your rotator cuffs, you and your wife went and traveled the world. Like you got to travel a lot. Where all did you guys go during that time? Because a lot of people like take that downtime and they just want to like recoup at home and whatever. I mean, I know you were like rehabbing and had to do all the proper PT things you've got to do to get back on track and all that. But you guys actually went and like experienced the world together. Right. So this is something that depending on who you ask, it was either foolish or, you know, found it inspiring. So it depends on how you look at it. But I obviously I had to keep doing my rehab. I couldn't just completely stop doing it. But yeah, you know, there are people that, uh, you know, I know Hunter, Triple H, or even uh, Finn, for example, when he had their surgeries, they lived in Birmingham, Alabama, so that they could train, you know. And I, I was down for some of that. I, I would want to go to Alabama every now and again. Uh, and I'd do some of my rehab at the PC, most of it at the PC. And then if I was going home to Montreal, I would do my rehab there. But then you reach a certain point in your rehab after the first um, couple of months, especially for shoulders, you know, you know what your exercises are and you just got to do that. But I don't have to do, I don't have to be in Birmingham, Alabama to do some external rotations with the band. I can do that in Switzerland. Right. So, so that's what I did. How is your body feeling now? Oh, tremendous. Tremendous. I'm very, very lucky. Uh, you know, my range of motion is a little funky on my, one of my shoulders and it clicks and whatever, but overall it's great. Uh, this new schedule is really tremendous. For your body, for sure. Your new, your, I wouldn't say your new character. It's not a new character per se, but the evolution of Sami Zayn is like you, I mean, you crack me up in general, but like, I just like watching like the, the social media posts you're putting out and the, like the documentary you're working on, how much of that is just you in the driver's seat with the creative on this? A fair bit. And you know, I heard, I heard John's now infamous podcast. Oh yes. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. Uh, and I understand. And that frustration exists to a certain extent for all the talent. I mean, any, anybody who's remotely creative and has to work, and this is excluding WWE, this is excluding wrestling even, this is just the, the arts and showbiz and whatever. I mean, if you are an artistic and creative person who wants to do things, but then the higher up you get in the world of show business, the less creative control you have, but the more money you make, right? So it's this weird relationship between rising and, um, and having creative freedom. And there's this battle between the two. I'm pretty fortunate to where I actually feel like I've had a lot of my ideas go through kind of shocking amounts, especially in the last two years. Well, like when you came back, 
and you kind of turned on the crowd and started cutting those promos, that must have been such an eye-opening experience for Vince to be like, oh, we can trust this guy on the mic to like really deliver some some interesting content. You know what's funny? There was, I forget what it was. There was this weird, you never know which segment's going to be the one that really opens their eyes. Because I think I was already doing pretty good work in the ring. I think I'd already established myself as a someone who's more than competent in the ring and more than, more than competent holding my own on the microphone as a good guy. But then especially, I thought I was doing some really good mic work as a bad guy, even before all this. But then there was this one day uh, where I... I was like a guest referee or something for Kevin versus Seth. I was just doing me. Like I wasn't really, I didn't even have any mic time. I was just, you know, banter that the, the mic, the, the camera would pick up when I was being a ref. When I got back, they were all like doubled over. And they're like, that's kind of what I think inspired the idea for me to start being a mouthpiece for Shinsuke. I came back and Vince was like, you've got the gift of gab. We gotta, we gotta, you know, there's just some, and I wasn't even cutting a promo. I was being a ref, but they just started seeing me in this new light. Where like this guy, he he can be so much. He can do so much for other people, even not just like. I, I think they saw a broader vision for me in that moment. As somebody who could be a manager, even 10, 15, 20 years down the road, and help other guys and all that kind of thing. And it was just some, some strange light bulb that went off when they just started seeing me in a bit of a different light. And I think there was a new trust maybe not, not carry a segment to your point to, to be a trusted guy. You can fill some time. I mean, it's like, it's being able to fill some time and it's very clear to me that it's like, you're not handed a promo that is a three page long promo. I mean, it seems like a lot of that truly is just you talking or maybe you're writing them ahead of time, whatever, but I can like yeah. knowing you the way that I know you, I can see that like transparency of like, Oh, that's just, Sammy being Sammy, like it's, yeah, and, it's and, and, great. I, and for sure, I'm one of the luckier guys because, I mean, it, it took a while for my ideas to start kind of getting through. But I'm sure John had a million ideas that he was pitching, you know, and, and he was a top guy. He was the champion. Sure. But I'm sure, you know, it's sometimes you just don't get them through. It's I just started getting lucky out of nowhere. And then because some of the stuff was working and I had good relationships with the writers, uh, you know, I don't know, just... I'm very lucky. I can't complain as much as other guys when it comes to pitching things and actually getting them. I have gotten away with a lot more than most. So I don't feel like I'm in a position to complain about that by any means. Do you ever get told to like reel it back? Cause I feel like, I mean, once you start going, as we can see on this show, I'm sure they must be like, don't go there. Don't talk about that. Like, does that come up for you? Well, so part of my process is um, when I'm working with writers on putting my stuff together, I want to put it together. This is how I like to work. I like to be in charge of the idea or not in charge, but I like to have my idea. I like to give it to you. And I like you to edit it a little bit and make it concise, make it deliverable in the allotted time we need. Or, you know, in the case of a producer, make sure it's in line with Vince's vision or whatever. But that's what I like. I have in, in certain moments been called, you know, difficult or whatever, but you'll find that the only times I'll be difficult is when things are being dictated to me. I don't like that. I'll admit I can be difficult for sure if you're dictating what I should, do, what I have to do, especially if I don't think if it's good. Like if you dictate, here's what you have to do and it's great. I'm like, oh man, that's great. I'll go with it. I, you'll get no pushback from me. But if you're telling me here, this is what you're doing and it's, and it's not good, I will be combative. 
Well, you can also be a, a rather misunderstood <laughs> person because you end up in these like Larry yeah, David yeah, moments. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, my, my problem, Renee, is that I'm not the best at, uh, I, I hate to even use this expression, but like playing the game. Like it's a gift and a curse. My heart's on my sleeve. I'm way, I'm very transparent and it's a gift and a curse. And when it comes to, you know, uh, WWE, there've been times I got better at it, but there's a certain language that you speak and a certain vocabulary. So as to not be so forceful or whatever it's man, it's a never ending learning process of learning to navigate different people who you can say what with, how you could say what with, with whom your language has to change with certain people. Yeah. Yes. And, and that was never a thing in my life until I got to WWE. So I didn't learn those skills of, you know, Jedi mind tricks and wanting to get my stuff in and, but saying it in a way You're that- battling English, French, Arabic. You're trying to learn how to yeah. juggle it all. <laughs> Throw the guy a bone. <sighs> yeah. Well, don't feel bad for me. It all worked out pretty well. With big fights every week, there's never been a better time to give FanDuel Sportsbook a shot and join the action on FanDuel Fight Nights. Because right now, you can place your first bet risk-free. That's right. You're going to get up to 1000 bucks back if you don't win. FanDuel gives you so many bets to choose from. There's parlays, round props, method of victory bets, and so much more. FanDuel is the number one rated sportsbook app in America. It's incredibly easy to use. It's such a no-brainer. Plus, it's safe and secure and real quick, fast payouts. You get that money right back in your pocket ASAP. One of my favorite features. You got to stay rich, you know, keep that money in your bank account. This app is so easy to use that when you win, you actually get paid in as little as two hours. So with FanDuel in your corner, you'll always get exclusive odds boosts, great promotions, and so much more to make your FanDuel fight night even more exciting. That is why they are America's number one sports book. So sign up with the promo code Renee to bet risk-free up to $1,000 on FanDuel Sportsbook. Download FanDuel today. That is promo code Renee, R-E-N-E-E. Disclaimer, 21 plus and present in Arizona, Colorado, Connecticut, Indiana, Michigan, New Jersey, Tennessee, Virginia, or West Virginia. First online real money wager only. Refund issued as non-withdrawable site credit that expires in 14 days. Restrictions apply. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text next step to 53342 for Arizona. 1-800-GAMBLER or visit fanduel.com slash RG for Colorado, Indiana, New Jersey, and Virginia. 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat for Connecticut. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. TN Redline 1-800-889-9789 in Tennessee or visit www.1800gambler.net for West Virginia. Okay, so I was on maternity leave, but I'm back because I've had my baby. It's been six weeks. I only gave myself six weeks. So as I was doing all of these maternity episodes, I'm having all these. Very, very American of you, might I say. Six weeks, I get know. back to work. No, I will say, I mean, I give, I will give like a little asterisk next to that. That is like, okay, I need like an, a couple hours a week where I just go into this other room in my house. It's not like I have to really go anywhere. No, 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 no. I mean, there's more prep that goes into it. I will say sure. there, there's more work than just hopping on and pressing the button and, and pressing record. I have found that out because you're asking me to help you kind of guest host this thing. Right. And, uh, yes. I was like, oh, uh, th- there's preparation to this. What am I going to do? But you do? didn't do it. 
which is very, very me. And, you know, maybe maybe I'll elaborate that on that a little bit, uh, you know, when we when we really get going. Of course, talking to Sami Zayn, he was one of the first people that I was like, oh, my God, I would love to have him come on and be a guest host. But in classic Sami Zayn fashion, it took a little while to get the ball rolling on that to really hammer him down to get this <laughs> locked in. So I'm back from maternity leave. So we're kind of doing this together, but the ball's definitely more in your court. This is still your episode of the show. And I'm just here to serve as some sort of conduit to whatever we decide to talk about. But you said you've not prepared. So that actually is fun for me. I like where this is headed. So first of all, when you asked me, I don't even know when you asked me, it must have been four or five months ago as well before you were had given birth because you were saying, hey, once I give birth, I'm going to take some time off and I'm going to have a few guests. Do you want to do it? And I was ecstatic. I thought, oh, my God, how fun is, you know, how fun would that be? And then when I thought about that a little bit, I was like, what's that all about? Why, 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 like, what kind of ego do I have that I'm like, oh, yeah, I get to talk about whatever I want. Everyone's going to listen to me just rambling about whatever I want. Yeah. You got your soapbox. You can do whatever you want. Right, right. But I mean, if you pick that apart for even just a a few seconds, you're like, what, what is that all about? And that's actually what I was kind of wanted this whole podcast to be about, which is when you unpack anything for even more than a few seconds and you start asking, huh, what's that about? Things get real interesting. This might take us off in like a different tangent, but because I'm in baby mode right now and had a baby, uh, went through all that as I was preparing to wrap my head around the idea of having a child, I took that back to being like, wait, am I just being like a narcissist that I feel the need to have a replication of myself to try to like have a baby? That wasn't your intention because we talked about this long before you ever we got did. pregnant. Uh, your intention was never, you know what I really need? Another me. Any me. <laughs> yeah, you never, that wasn't it. In fact, I would say the opposite was true. Yes. You, you were more about, I want to care about someone and something else more than I care about me and my wardrobe. You know, I have so many clothes. I do I'm so sick of wardrobe, buying though. clothes. No, no, you, your, your wardrobe's actually ridiculous. And I think you're upset that clothes, I cut my shirt though. No, I'm not. I'm not. I love it. And I appreciate it that you've, you've fashioned it in your own, in your own style. But all I'm getting at is it was the very, very opposite of that. It wasn't narcissistic. You wanted to care for something and be about something bigger than yourself. Yeah. I was over myself. I'm over myself. Yeah. The spotlight is on somebody else though. I will just add this one note is that, um, my baby is John. So it's, it's, she's John. What do you through mean? And through. Yeah, personality-wise. She looks like John. Well, personality-wise, a little hard to tell. She's a little feisty, so she's got that for me for sure. She looks like John. You know what I heard not long ago, and I don't know, I don't know, this might be speculative, but apparently it's like a biological evolutionary type thing that babies early on look more like the dad. I mean, think, 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 about, think about everything we know now that we take as a, as, a, as, a, as a given, as this is how babies are made, and it's one sperm cell and one egg cell, and they have two combined, and you have genetics and DNA. This is extremely, extremely new information in the scope of human history. Even the idea that it's one father, I mean, we take that as a, as a given. But I, I think I, I heard something that, uh, I, you know, I, I don't remember. I was ancient tribes, but I, I don't remember where, when I, <laughs> where this is deriving from. But they believed, like m- many men would have intercourse with the woman because they believed that, like, you're making a cocktail and you're getting the best of all these men. I'd call that a cocktail. Right. And when you think about that, if you didn't know what we know now as a given 
of genetics and one cell and one egg and all this, you'd be like, hey, you know what would make great babies? We take the strongest guy, the fastest guy, the tallest guy, and we, we get them all together and they all do their thing with the woman and then she'll have a super baby. I mean, that's kind of like a, a natural way to think if you didn't know what we already know. You'd want to weed out the weak links. Well, I'm not sure you'd want to. I'm just saying it's, I'm just trying to highlight how we take this thing as common knowledge and we take it like, of course, it's just always how it is, but it's, it's not. So that is why apparently evolutionarily uh, the baby early on looks like the father. So you could tell who the father is. Wow. Right. Isn't that kind of nuts? And I don't know. I don't even know where I got this information, but I just thought, isn't that cool? That's very interesting because, I mean, a lot of times when you look at a baby, it's kind of hard to tell. But I will say as soon as this baby was cut from my womb, the doctor looked at John and was like, here's your baby, sir. This is your kid. (laughs) (laughs) How insulting after the labor you're going through and the pain. I did everything. That No, that is total patriarchal (laughs) BS is what that is. Like you're there bleeding. He won't even look at you in the eye. He's like, sir. Probably lighting a cigar, you know. He's ashing it over me. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) ashing it over your wounds. (laughs) That'll seal that up nicely. Uh, Oh my god! No, you know she's actually she's actually a woman and she's pretty cool. Uh, But it was just because the baby looked so much like John when she came out that she was like, "Here's your paternity test." But (laughs) I'm I'm out for revenge. (laughs) Who's this doctor? Um, Okay, so. I mean, we came on here and we didn't really have a plan of what we wanted to talk about, but was there was some wrestling stuff that you wanted to talk about, right? Is this true that you like we were going to like do a little dissection into some wrestling things or no? What we're kind of talking about now was almost the idea I had for the podcast, which is just, hey, here are things we take as givens, not just about life, but wrestling, because everyone who's listening to this is probably a wrestling fan. That's how they know you. I'm sure you've attracted a few scragglers from other avenues or whatever, but your notoriety is from the wrestling world. So I'm assuming that a large part of your fan base is uh, our wrestling fans. We all love and wrestling. So Everything idea- is wrestling. And, and you know what? Wrestling's fascinating. So even if you're not a wrestling fan, I thought it would be really interesting to look at wrestling as this thing that we have this general uh, understanding of what it is, or we kind of take it at face value for what it is. But then when you start to think about it for even a minute, and start to dissect things like, why does it work this way? Or what are these storylines about? Or what influences this? Why is it this way? And that's kind of what I wanted to do. But again, I didn't do my homework well enough. <laughs> so I have, so I have just fragmented. Here. No, I mean, look, I, I have my views on things, but it's also uh, a reflection of how I feel about other things in the world. And wrestling is just an easy way to point to it because wrestling has sort of been my thing, my constant in my life where I could see, ah, these things that I think about in society and the world, they're also reflected in wrestling. You know what I mean? And just drawing those, just drawing those parallels between the humanities and wrestling and how wrestling uses the humanities, you know, like psychology and uh, sociological norms and things like that. And wrestling plays on all of those. So you have to have an implicit understanding of that stuff in order to do wrestling well. So I just kind of, I'm fascinated by the humanities and by the social sciences. I just thought wrestling, my God, it's such a reflection of of so many of these things. That's a lot of what I wanted to kind of do is just think about some of these things that we see in wrestling a lot and go, 
where do you think that comes from? Or what, what's that about? Or what does this say about our society? You know, things like that. You know, there's that like phrase of like everything is wrestling. I mean, so many things can either be reflected in wrestling or stem from wrestling. I mean, even you touching on like the psychology of the way that wrestling kind of comes together. It always blew my mind how much there was to know about wrestling, like the psychology behind things, the why things work, why things don't work. And this is not like a, you can't just take like a crash course and try to figure that out. It takes years and years and years to really kind of figure out why things work and don't work. And you're constantly having to learn and evolve and like keep your finger on the pulse to figure shit out. And the funny thing is in wrestling, even, even a um, somewhat casual fan will have heard the word psychology and wrestling, but we never, we never seem to connect the very obvious dots of psychology and wrestling and psychology, the actual <laughs> scientific discipline. But that's what it is. It's not wrestling psychology and psychology. It's just psychology. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's how does wrestling prey on what we know about people and, and the human condition? And how do we manipulate that? You know, you have to have a, a basic understanding. Actually, I'd say more than basic, a, a somewhat complex understanding of the human condition in order to manipulate the human condition. And how much harder has that gotten over the years in terms of like fans awareness, how much knowledge is out there for people to know as humans are changing and like our wants and needs are changing. People's uh, attention spans are constantly changing. Like, does that make putting together wrestling shows and matches more difficult to evolve from what wrestling matches used to be? I'm sure in some ways, but I'm still talking about just the nuts and bolts you know, I'm just talking about what is wrestling and the, the idea of like a good guy and a bad guy. And here's things that we say are wrong or that are right. And here's things that that make someone virtuous. And here's the things that make somebody dastardly. And here are the sort of parameters and the meaning that we ascribe to things because it's all made up. But that's part of the beautiful reflective nature of wrestling is that it's not just wrestling that's all made up. It's all of it. <laughs> I feel like this is like, we need like a, we need like Daniel Bryan on this podcast or like Brian Kendrick. We, I feel like it's like, this is what I'm saying about just thinking about something for more than 10 seconds. If you take it at more than face value, like our society, these very complex things. And you start to kind of go, what's that about? Like, oh, it's, it's all just kind of made up. <laughs> right. It's all like our taboos uh, evolve with time. There are things that are taboo now that won't be taboo in 20 years or things that were very taboo 20 years ago that are out in the open now. And what are some like examples of those like taboo things? Uh, I don't know, just off the top of my head, let's say homosexuality, right? Has, has changed the way we as a society uh, look at homosexuality now versus 40 years ago. Sure. But, but certainly out in the open and in the world of sports or whatever, you know, it's always been prevalent, but I'm just saying everything's viewed differently and everything's constantly changing. Because things are constantly changing, you start to realize that the stuff's all kind of made up. And uh, I don't want to say arbitrary because there are obvious reasons why everything ends up the way it is. That's one of the things I was going to discuss <laughs> is like uh, that everything is the way it is for a reason. I think that's part of a whole bigger thing that I want to unpack. Sure. And wrestling is a great example of that, right? Because I could say, hey, this matters. And it, we set the parameters. So if we can do that, then you start to realize that, oh, wait, that's kind of how society works is these parameters are set and we're all operating within a very specific framework that are just like, you know, 
I don't want to say arbitrary. It's not the right word, but they're fictive and they're man-made and we choose them and, and the goalposts move over time. I think part of what's colored my perception of this kind of stuff is that if I go back to my upbringing from a very young age, being Arab and Muslim and being brought up in an extremely Arab, extremely Muslim household, and then also being this white looking redheaded kid, you know, for all intents and purposes, just raised in, in, in the Western world and kind of adopting to these two totally different sets of values and norms and different taboos and different things makes you aware very early on, not on a conscious level that you could articulate because you're not there yet, but you have this sort of implicit understanding that, oh, certain people do things this way, and then other people in other places in the world do things that way. So when you already start to kind of understand that, again, not in a way that you're able to articulate in any sort of smart way when you're seven, but you already have this sort of implicit understanding of it, and you kind of start to see that nothing is necessarily set in stone that there aren't these hard truths about the way what is right and what is wrong, because something that was right in, let's say, the Canadian Western society would have been considered wrong in, a, in an Arab Islamic society. And I got to kind of dip my toes in both and realize like, oh, it's fine here, but it's not fine here. What's that about? <laughs> you know, and I think that's the underlying thing of what I wanted to, to, to kind of unpack today is just what's that about? When you're like applying that to wrestling terms, uh, I mean, there's so many different ways that you can look at that of like why certain things work in, in one promotion or they don't work in another one. Um, some of like the rules of how like for me entering the wrestling world and learning what some of these like sort of unspoken rules were of like the handshaking and the like wondering if you can change in the locker room, like some of these things that you're just not really aware of when you like, I didn't come from that world and trying to figure those things out at a quick pace so that you're not booted out of everything. Yes. And that's fascinating that you, you think you understand culture because you're a part of this culture, but then you enter this subculture and you're like, Whoa, wait, what? Yeah. There's this world here and there's an entirely different way of functioning. Now, when you're an adult and you're entering a new subculture Maybe not everybody, but certainly me and the way my brain works. I kind of look around. I'm like, well, this is all a little silly, isn't it? <laughs> when you, again, it's not. It's not arbitrary because there are historical reasons for everything and why things end up being the way they are. And, you know, if you have a deeper understanding of the, of the wrestling business and its evolution and how protected it was, you, you kind of start to understand these things and why things are the way they are. But as let's say an outsider, because you were you were a wrestling fan, but then you know you also were a broadcaster, and then eventually, yeah, it was definitely like not a part of like the world of wrestling. Like I was on the outskirts of it, and then I was submerged in the culture of it. And yeah, quickly, like you've got to have like your eyes and your ears open to be like, wait, how does this work? So that yeah, you aren't the person that gets ousted for not knowing what is going on. And even then, you entered WWE, which is a kind of its own other subculture too. There's a culture within that company versus, uh, you know, cultures in different companies or on the independents. But all I'm saying is, when you when you're mindful of this stuff, and you don't just take it at face value, it's very interesting. And in a way, you kind of have to laugh at it because it's also kind of silly. Well, it's funny because I remember sort of thinking that I thought that it was a bit silly or like, wait, someone's going to act like you guys are not going to like somebody if they don't do one of these things or like how that person's perceived. 
But then after my time being there, if I saw somebody doing one of the things, I'm like, oh my God, this person's doing it. Like you, like you become a little bit more accustomed to how things work when you don't know and you're fully submerged in that world. And I think that's incredible. Think about that. How quickly you could think about the world. Let's take wrestling out of it now for a sec. Wrestling is the backdrop, right? But you entered this, this culture with a way of thinking. But then you kind of get like indoctrinated or assimilated or kind of taught like, no, 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 no. This is how you think. This is how you behave. This is how you do things around here. Maybe at first you're like, what? But then you start to kind of adopt it. And then the next thing you know, you become a product of it. Okay. So think about that in wrestling, but think about that also in the, in the scope of the world and politics and insane wars over human history and how easy, how easy it is to shape the human mind. And that's where, again, wrestling is a reflection for a much bigger thing that fascinates me is like how you can take an ordinary person, fill their head with ideas that are just made up. They're all just ideas. They're not, nothing's tangible, nothing's set in stone. You know, it's all just words in the air. And all of a sudden you can be like, yes, death <laughs> yeah, to that person. Yes. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like it gets extreme and it's all just nothing. <laughs> it's all just yeah. nothing. It's all just words and ideas and it's all just made up. Just like wrestling's all made up and the culture within wrestling's all kind of made up. And again, there are things that shape it, but still the, the end result is so fascinating to me. Because somebody initially made that up and then people just took it as gospel and then it just kind of grows and it builds and that becomes what the culture of that thing is. Yeah, it's fascinating. Oh my God. Like I'm, I'm actually kind of glad that my brain doesn't work like that because that seems exhausting to think of like all of these different. It's fun too, though. Yeah. So I had this, uh, I had two things in my head that are kind of opposite ideas, but that I kind of subscribe to. It's a little bit of a nurture nature conversation and, uh, and I'll relate them back to wrestling. Cause that, that's the whole point of some of this. So I was watching this Bob Dylan documentaries. Martin Scorsese put out a documentary on, on Netflix a few years ago about uh, Bob Dylan, specifically about a tour he did in the 70s called the Rolling Thunder Review. A couple of things jumped out at me about this that I thought were fascinating. And one was the very beginning. I'm going to paraphrase all this because I don't remember any of it, but it's just, I don't remember the specifics. But you know, I think Scorsese or whoever's directing asks him, you know, what do you remember about the Rolling Thunder Review? Because it was really an interesting thing. He got all these musicians and all these poets and he played really small venues. It was a really, really interesting tour. And he starts to answer with this like wishy-washy sort of answer that you would expect out of a Bob Dylan, a poet. And then he cuts himself off. And it's like, you know what? It was just another tour. I don't even remember. I've been on tour nonstop <laughs> for 40 years. He's not going to remember everything, you know, it might, it might seem iconic to us, but it might just be a drop in the bucket for Bob. Who's been on the, on the, you know, quote unquote, never ending tour. That's what he's known for is he's, he's been on tour forever and he kind of doesn't remember it. So I thought that was real interesting in the idea of, oh, that's also kind of Bobish is that antagonistic quality to him, which I find interesting. The reason I'm bringing up Bob Dylan, he gets asked about something about like the meaning of life, like just what's something about what's it all about. And he has this answer that I found really interesting where he, he says, life isn't about finding anything. It's about creating. It's about creating yourself and creating things. And I thought that was real interesting because it, it poses, it started bringing up the idea to me about like the authentic self and 
Bob in particular is a real interesting fella in his evolution of his career. If you're a real, if you, you look into it, you know, he starts, he gets a lot of notoriety in the folk scene in New York. And then he becomes like this voice of the generation with his protest music. And he quickly, he has this antagonistic sort of quality to him. So he's like, Hey, no, that's not me. And he starts doing something completely different. And then in the late sixties, all of a sudden he's putting on a cowboy hat and doing like Nashville blues. And then he's a born again Christian. So he's just doing all this sort of stuff. I just, I was reading some interviews with people who knew him early on and they're talking about how he would take things and then he would just make them a part of him. And that got me really thinking as it pertains to wrestling as a hardened critic now of wrestling, because I've been in it so long, it takes a lot to sort of impress me. I, I, I think what really stands out, what fans really gravitate towards is the idea of authenticity. If somebody plays their character well enough to where there's believability, all of it, the, the very nature of wrestling revolves around believability because we all know it's a show, but you, we want you to trick us. You want to believe. And so I think that's why authenticity is so important in wrestling because first of all, the work has to be authentic enough to, to make us forget or to make us believe. But then the characters, we have this innate quality. Maybe it's just me because I'm like snooty. I've been in wrestling so long. Ah, you call that wrestling. Ah, I don't know what. Maybe, maybe that's me now. I don't know. But if there's something that, that I don't find believable in the way somebody's carrying themselves, I'm out. I think a lot of it is attraction to confidence. And it takes a lot of confidence to be that authentic person. Right, right. So what is it about us? not just as wrestling fans, but about people that need this sort of authenticity. There is like that, like charisma that's attached to someone that just seems like they don't need to be seeking out what's right or what's wrong They're They've already made their decision and they've already, they're like forging their own path, not having to worry about what everyone else is doing. Cause that's all I think most of us want at the end of the day is to have the confidence to just be our authentic selves. But a lot of us are constantly trying to change to please people. The flip side of that, another kind of paraphrase quote here that I kind of remember in Bret Hart's book, the very beginning of the book, he has a quote in there. Again, I'm going to butcher it, but it's something along the lines of life. As you get older, you find life is less about what you learn and more about what you've known all along. That lends itself to the idea that there is this sort of authentic self Whereas the Bob Dylan example that I'm kind of talking about leads me to kind of think that there is no authentic self. You're just this sort of amalgamation and cocktail of all these. Cause that's what I really, I think I'm, I skew more to that. I don't think there's just you. What are you? What are you? You're not you. You're just, you're, you're just this mix of things that have been filled in your head and the product of the, your environment and all these things. And they shape you. I'm kind of of the opinion that maybe there is no authentic self. I think it's a little bit of both the nature nurture conversation. Like, obviously, I think you are born, you know, with, let's say, predispositions or whatever. But ultimately, it's like a bunch of light switches. And even genetics, we now know, work like this. You're not genetically doomed to have, let's say, breast cancer or something. But you could have a genetic predisposition and external forces of your environment can turn those light switches on and turn those genetics on. So I, I think like everything, I don't think it's one or the other. I think it's a little bit of both, but ultimately I think that there is no real authentic self when it comes to like, certainly when you talk about wrestling, because wrestling is all just marketing yourself to kind of get over and all this stuff, but you have to do it in a way that makes people think that what they're seeing is, is the real you. 
But there is no real you. Is there? I don't know. What I'm getting at is it all kind of ties into that idea of understanding where things come from and understanding why things are the way they are and why people are the way they are. I mean, it's still, it's, it's all just very interesting to me, I think. And like, my brain is just like opening and kind of exploding as we're talking about all this stuff. Cause I'm like, wow, I've not, my brain has just not gone there, but I find it fascinating. And so that's the amazing thing. I, I think there's reasons behind that too. Uh, but I just think we're living so much on the surface day to day that we just, we're hovering on the surface and there's this insane deep, and it's getting deeper and deeper because it's unaddressed, this deep pool beneath us. And we're just living here with like YouTube videos and cats and Instagram likes and stuff like that, living on the surface the whole time. And there's just so much that's, um, that's left unaddressed. And even then I have a whole theory about that. I think that, you know, living in a consumerist society that teaches you to care primarily about these things and to consume and spend money on these things rather than, you know, think about things that actually matter. I think that's kind of by design. I think that's a part of the culture that we live in. I think a lot of that needs to be eradicated. And, and uh, I think everybody needs to do a little introspection, not just with ourselves, but when you start to look in at yourself, you also start to look out at the culture that shapes you, right? Because that's another huge split in my life, which has been the dynamic between like, like the individual and the collective. Does the individual, like this expression, what is it? You create the universe, but the universe creates you, right? So it's like you create your own world, but you're also, again, a product of, of the world around you. It's a chicken and the egg still, right? Yes, but it's a bit of both. It's understanding the duality and the dynamic. There's a relationship there. And so this is one of the things about wrestling. So I want to do a whole thing about this one time. My, my favorite chant in wrestling, you deserve it. <laughs> you deserve I'm like, do you, do you deserve anything? You know, the people that are doing the chant are the fans and they're the ones that feel that you deserve that. It's not you starting your own chant. No, but what about believing that chant? I'm like, you know what? I worked hard and I do deserve it. No, no, I don't think so. I think everybody works hard with a few, you know, exceptions. So here's the biggest thing that I think the biggest source of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Malcontent, I don't know. The thing that leaves me in a state of unease is how amazing my life is and the juxtaposition with how awful life is for so many other people and the sorrow that I feel for other people and how I have it so good. And it's not because I deserve it. That's the point. I don't deserve it any more than the next person. I don't. I believe it's just mainly luck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I worked hard, whatever. Everybody works hard. And, and you know what? I'm really great at wrestling. I'm really, really good. Like not everybody is, is this good. And even that, I don't know, you know, whatever. There's a million ways to why I'm good at it or whatever the hell. But a lot of people work hard at a lot of things and don't get the breaks. And I got breaks. And it's time to acknowledge that. <laughs> <laughs> so don't ever chant, you deserve it at me. I don't want to hear it. I would much rather uh, you got lucky. <laughs> Please, I hope that chant takes over. Please, for the <laughs> love of God, start chanting, you got lucky to Sami Zayn. Yeah, that's a good chant. When I win the WWE championship, that's what I want. You got super lucky. Not the best <laughs> chant in the world, but you make it work, people. You make it work because that's the truth. Yeah, hard work. Sure, whatever. 
They go hand in hand. I mean, it's the, you know, the perfect timing and meets preparation and all that shit. I mean, it's all the same thing, right? But the preparation is part of it. Nobody's discounting that because it's a given. But a lot of people don't do the prep. Who are these people? What are you talking about? I think they exist. I don't think so. I think everybody. I think they exist. I I think far less than you think. That's my opinion. I think everybody's working pretty hard every day just to survive, just to put food on the table. And like, yeah, you've got a few people who are like, whatever, I don't care, you know, and barely doing anything. I think that's the minority. I think the majority of people want a good life for themselves, work very hard to try to get things, but just don't get the breaks. Should I call you out now for not prepping for my podcast? Yeah, but here's the thing. I am so good at this <laughs> that I'm able to float by unscathed. <laughs> but you see what I'm saying? Even then, even then. There's so much to unpack there and I would love to continue to unravel it, but my, I can hear my baby crying and I must go tend to her. Let me say one more thing before you do. I'll just tie this one thing to wrestling. Because we haven't done it the whole time I've been trying to. The individual <laughs> effort versus the, 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 the collective effort, right? So you take someone like Roman Reigns, who's a great example. Roman, no one's going to say he's not good. He's awesome, clearly. However, think of how many people it took to get him there. And so that's the amazing thing about wrestling that I think about all the time is the duality and the dynamic between the individual and the collective, because it's a very individual mindset of like, I got to get over. I'm the best. I have to believe him. A little bit of that is like WWE conditioning or whatever. Like you got to think like you're the man and you want to be in the top spot. And this, it's all through, it's all through a lens of sort of dominance, which is a whole other, I won't even touch all that. My point is just that while we're talking about us, 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 you're relying on the person next to you to get you there. You can be the best. You can be the best promo in the world. Who are you going to cut a promo on if nobody's there to work with you? You know what I'm saying? We need one another to get ahead on an individual level. And, you know, just understanding that dynamic, I think, is important. And again, it's one of those things that's reflected in society and in ourselves, but also you see it in the wrestling business. When we talk about this guy's the best, that guy's the best, you have to understand the totality of the, of the picture. That's all I'm getting at. We hope you enjoyed the best of oral sessions. Follow Renee on social media at Renee Paquette and be sure to subscribe to her YouTube channel. Also, rate and review this podcast.